0: Welcome to another episode of Forest Works, the show that talks about all things forestry, the people, the stories, and the places of British Columbia's single largest industry. You can hear Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. on Radio NL. Forest Works is also a podcast that you can find on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Stuart Muir. If you want to know more about the Forest Works project, check out our website, Forestworks.ca. The Forest Works Podcast can be found at your favorite podcast app. And Forest Works is brought to you by ResourceWorks, looking at how responsible development of British Columbia's natural resources creates jobs and incomes throughout the province, both directly and indirectly, while maintaining a clean and healthy environment. Today, we're speaking to an award-winning forester from Ladysmith on Vancouver Island, one who has had a significant role in shaping BC's forest industry over a 40-year career. That person is Jim Gervan. Jim, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Stuart. I appreciate being here today.
0: I know you've been a registered professional forester for that whole period. You've served as executive director of the Truck Loggers Association of BC. That's the organization that represents those smaller independent forest contractors advocating for their needs. He's a past director of the Pacific Logging Congress. Jim, tell us about your career. How did you get into this field?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting how I ended up getting into forestry. I grew up in Toronto and for anybody that's been there.
0: Not a lot of forest there. You like to yeah. <laughs> leave. So
1: I ended up going to school and immediately came to British Columbia. I worked in the, in the interior for about 20 years before coming to the coast. And I, I've done a lot of different things working as a consultant, as you pointed out, as an advocate with the truck loggers. I worked in pulp and paper for uh, several years. But for the last 17 years with my partner, Murray Hall, we basically made a career out of explaining how this industry works and not just to people from away, as they say, but you know, to people, you know, you know, company working in the interior might want to know how somebody on the coast operates. Um, how does stumpage operate? Who owns the wood? How, how does the, how do you get to log? How much is there? Where is it? What's it cost? Mm -hmm. That became the focus of what we've did for the last 17 years.
0: Well, Jim, you're also someone who lives and breathes the forest the big trees, the, the splendor of British Columbia. I know that you spent a good part of the summer and fall in a very special place. Can you tell us about your, your trip to Haida Gwaii?
1: Oh, I, I love going to Haida Gwaii. It's, it's one of those places where you can, you know, get, get away from the internet, get away from cell service. Mm-hmm. The trees that grow there, I was uh, shocked the first time I went because I'd heard the stories about how they're overcutting on Haida Gwaii, and then you go up there, you try and drive on roads that have been not used for two or three years, and there's trees growing up in them. It, the trees just grow so fast there. It's unbelievable. The people are friendly, and, you know, we go up. The fishing's not bad either, so it's, a, it's really mm-hmm. a beautiful
0: place. Beautiful. We'll have to talk about that in more detail another time. An incredible place I've fished up in Haida Gwaii as well. It's just a, a place that everyone should get to see. But Jim, we're talking about forestry today. You've, you've published numerous articles. You recently wrote about the impact of curtailing the annual allowable cut. That's how much the province of BC lets the forest industry cut. The effect of changes on that on the pulp and paper industry. Tell us a little more about this.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We we did this work for the Pulp and Paper Coalition uh, in British Columbia here, which is a group that represents the pulp produce. It's interesting, you know, for that uh, group. When you think of the forest industry, a lot of people immediately think of sawmills or logging, you know, as being, you know, that is the industry. But what people don't know is that 50% of every tree cut in British Columbia ends up being consumed in a pulp and paper facility, either to make, you know, make pulp, make paper, or to generate energy that they use to produce their products. So they're very tied at the hip to what goes on in government with respect to policy, how that might impact the allowable cut, how that might impact sawmills where they derive a, a majority of their fiber to make their products.
0: Right. So if there's a big change, whether it's up or more likely down in the annual allowable cut, that's going to affect the pulp and paper industry and all those pulp and paper towns.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, unlike the uh, sawmill sector and the logging sector, where, you know, pretty much every community in British Columbia, you know, pulp mills are in the rural communities. And so, you know, they're they're always very concerned. Uh, a lot of them are in one one industry towns. And so there's always concern for if there's going to be a risk to policy change that may impact, you know, the available wood supply and how it might impact their ability to employ people.
0: Well, today I hope we can get into some of the predictions that you've made. You've had an uncanny accurate track record in predicting what happens when you make changes here, what happens over there to the number of jobs that are affected. We'll come back to that. But Jim, I just want to point out for listeners that you're not just a registered professional forester, you're also an MBA, kind of an interesting mixture of the science and the business side. So you really get this from a different perspective. How common is it for there to be foresters with MBAs out there?
1: Well, there's there's a few of us around. And, and really, I was drawn into the business side of this. I mean, I, I spent the first half of my Yeah, 42 years fundamentally working in the woods and, and, and supporting the, our crews that did work in the woods. But eventually, you know, the understanding of how, how does the business side of this work? How do people think about investment? you know, what kind of security they need to be able to put up $150 million to upgrade a sawmill or change a pulp mill uh, line. And and so understanding how those decisions get made became very fascinating to me. And as soon as I graduated from the MBA, I ended up working in a commercial bank, lending money to these businesses. And it really gave me that understanding of what was important to them. And it always... Came down to security. They need to understand if we're going to invest 150, 200 million dollars to upgrade a facility, you know, continue to, you know, provide those uh, good family paying jobs they need to know that they've got a wood supply. And that became what I ended up focusing on once we had that understanding of the business of forestry.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you've obviously done well because in February of this year, the Association of BC Forest Professionals awarded you a, the Distinguished Forest Professional Award. So congrats for that. It's,
1: it was a surprise. I don't tend to seek acknowledgement for the work I've done. I've, I've kind of got this, I like to lead from behind to be able to figure things out, to be able to help people with their businesses and, and then let others take the credit. But, you know, after 42 years, yeah, it was nice to get uh, acknowledgement for the fact that, you know, in 2010, you know, we kind of figured out how the beetle, the mountain pine beetle was going to negatively, unfortunately, impact uh, this industry. And it allowed a lot of companies to then navigate their way through how they changed their business models and how they changed their corporate structures in order to be able to deal
0: with that changing wood supply. Did you make any predictions at that time and what happened?
1: Well, in 2010, you know, when when we were at the height of the beetle, you know, we published a globally recognized report that predicted that 16 sawmills would close by 2017. And unfortunately, they did. And then in 2017, we predicted that 13 more would close by 2020. And they did. So we've got a pretty good record here of understanding the supply and demand dynamics of how the industry works. And and, and really, when there's there's only so much wood that can be used, and as mills have um, invested in their uh, capacities and their efficiencies, more importantly, you know, you don't need as many mills to be able to process the wood supply as it declined after that beetle, you know, killed basically, you know, 40 to 50 percent of the forest in British Columbia.
0: Right. So you predicted that there would be thirty three mills that closed in two slices, and that's exactly what happened.
1: That's that's exactly what happened. And that's just in the
0: interior. Jim, I just got a suggestion for your next career. Have you thought of getting into being a pollster like federal <laughs> politics? They they could use someone with your record.
1: Well, I it's it's unfortunate that I tend to always predict bad things and they come true, and I've gotten a bit of a reputation for that. But at the same time there's a, there's a
0: Stephen King movie there too. I mean you can really branch out this next phase. <laughs>
1: Well, it, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way that this industry has worked, is it's contracted you know, over the last 40 years that I've been in. It's steadily contracted. And as the wood supply goes down, demand for that wood supply has not gone down. But unfortunately, mills have had to fall out of the equation in order to you know, keep that uh, fiber supply balance.
0: Yeah, but isn't the world using more paper products and fiber for all kinds of uses? I mean, there's a million and one uses, not even the stuff that you think. I mean, that stuff, plus all this other... Other material that is made out of, out of wood or, or different uh, extracts from the pulp and paper process. I mean, there's more people using more stuff. Why is the BC forest industry on this trend?
1: It really boggles the mind when you think about it, because you're right. The global population is growing. There's limited wood supplies globally. We're pretty good at growing trees. We are internationally recognized as being, you know, certified and sustainable in what we do. But at the same time, Mother Nature has dealt us a couple of bad cards. You know, with the with the pine beetle primarily. We've had significant fires over the last, you know, the the last two years, and this past one here has been been particularly bad up in the central interior spruce beetles you know so those kinds of biological factors have have worked against us and the the government at the time was very proactive and Making sure that the industry got to utilize all that dead wood or that burnt wood before it became uh, unusable to make any product. But unfortunately, you know, as be, be, because there's so much that's been damaged, we have to take a bit of a pause in what people can cut now so that in the long term, we have that sustainable level of harvest, which is critical to maintaining that recognition, you know, globally that we're good at what we do and that we're sustainable.
0: Mm-hmm. You're listening to ForestWorks, where all things forestry. I'm your host, Stuart Muir, and today we're joined by Jim Gervin. For more information, check out forestworks.ca and listen to our podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. Now, Jim... There's a lot happening right now in British Columbia government policy. I'd like you to help us understand that. Recently, there was the BC Old Growth Strategic Review. The basics of that were that the province contracted a couple of veteran foresters, real professionals, to come back with recommendations on how to modernize the forest industry, in particular, looking at old growth. Trees that on the coast are 250 years or older, trees in the interior that are 140 years or older. They made a bunch of recommendations, 14 of them. They Then after that, The province appointed a panel of five individuals who are working right now, and they maybe already have reported out, to review and make recommendations based on this. So I think we we should use the, the rest of our time today to unpack what's going on there. But just before we get into all the implications of this, for listeners who don't know all the details, Jim, would you mind giving us a quick rundown of the review process and the 14 recommendations they came out with?
1: Yeah, that's, that's not a problem. So the, the report was entitled a new future for old forests, uh, written by Al Gorley and Gary Merkel, two professional foresters last year. Hundreds of submissions of information, hundreds of meetings. They did surveys. There was technical reports and submissions. The goal was always to provide government. Some guidance. What, what does the people of British Columbia really think about their old, old forests? What does the industry, how do they utilize them so that they could then formulate what's the direction we should take, you know, going forward? They came up with a comprehensive set of recommendations that were meant to guide forest policy change so that it was consistent with what the public wanted. A process that, that always happens, you know, forest policy is constantly changing. But for day, today, those, those changes are all focused around old growth. And, and I've got kind of two. Two key comments here that I think the, the people listening should understand. And the first one is that nowhere in the 14 recommendations does it say to ban old growth logging. Despite the rhetoric you hear in the media today, people are always saying we need to ban old growth logging. We need to follow the, the recommendations in the old growth report. My opinion here is that the government has committed to implementing the recommendations and they're working diligently to do so. But nowhere does it say ban old growth logging. And, and it just takes time to systematically implement what's going to be a, a paradigm shift in how we think about old forests.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. the, The, the unfortunate reality is that the province has made a lot of steps. Last year, they brought in the big tree protection legislation. They made a number of deferrals in September of 2020. Did they get any credit for that from the, the groups that have been calling for policy changes?
1: It's, it's unfortunate. The government's actually done quite a bit of, uh, you know, work on, on a number of these various steps. You know, the, the immediate preservation of at-risk ecosystems. They created the, the committee. To look at uh, what what next steps could be taken there, yeah, they're they're doing they're doing a good job, I think. One of the, one of the key things, unfortunately, that I don't think they have done is fully act on recommendation number one. and And I'll just read it here: engage the full involvement of indigenous leaders and organizations to review this report and provide uh, strategy development and implementation advice. That's been weak, unfortunately. The, the you know the committee that's they struck after the. Fact to look at potential old growth deferrals was fundamentally based up of the environmental community. Uh, And to my knowledge, there has not been a lot of input from industry or First Nations on where that's going to land. So, yes, they're working down the list, but perhaps they're going about
0: it in the wrong order here. Yeah, it's funny. You know, there's a bit of a parallel. Maybe you look at the Paris Agreement on climate and Although a lot of people who came out of the, the Paris talks where that happened said, this says that we have to ban fossil fuels, it actually doesn't mention anywhere the word fossil fuels, or for that matter, gasoline or oil or natural gas. It it talks about, uh, I think mentions 15, 16 times, emissions. The Paris Agreement is about emissions, which is the problem for climate. And yet... So many people have taken away the belief that it's it's about oil and gas now obviously there's there's issues with things that create emissions but I, I think there's a bit of a parallel here to my mind anyways on what we're seeing with the old growth report because as you point out quite correctly it says nowhere in fact th- th- that there should be a ban on old growth there are all kinds of measures what would a measure be that the government could take to deal with the 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 problem, which is really at the root of it, of biodiversity. How do we ensure that the things that are most important to British Columbians can be preserved while we still have a functioning economy?
1: Well, that and that's that's the balance that I think governments—that's what governments are in place to do—has has has to strike. And and you know, to your previous comment, if you say if you say it enough, people start to believe it. And the and the the rhetoric that has come out of a lot of the environmental campaigns—they constantly keep saying, "Implement the report, ban old growth. Implement report, ban old growth." I personally believe the public thinks that's what the report says because, but but it doesn't. So so just to be clear on that, you know, what the report says is that we have to maintain biodiversity in ecosystems and that becomes the critical factor. So so it comes down to how, how much old growth is left in 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 various landscapes. How do we best preserve it? Have we overharvested in some places and is there still opportunity in other? This is all the work that the report actually spoke to that I believe government is going down the path of, but it's hard to do that when you've got a, you know a group like at Ferry Creek that are constantly manipulating the media and making people believe things that simply are not true or are not contained in the report and and it's unfortunate as the government tries to diligently work through and do their best to to address what fundamentally people have said they wanted as reported in the in the old growth report
0: well well Jim I've said a number of times in different interviews and things I've written that the way the ferry Creek and the theatrics there fit into this is that they're meant to be a kind of public stage to create noise and put pressure on decision makers our elected officials in Victoria to make them do the things that a very small number of groups want those policymakers to do and the idea is to create enough discomfort and pain and you know, cast the reputation of British Columbia into doubt internationally— by having these theatrics and arrests and very loud. I was watching a video recently of the the sort of wailing of someone. I mean, you can see there's 10 RCMP officers who are very carefully extracting someone from a a device and, and, and that that person occupying the device isn't supposed to be there because the judge has has made a ruling on that and doing everything carefully to protect that person. But you've got the cameras there. And so the screaming starts and it becomes police brutality. and, And that's the, the, Way that this pressure is manufactured? Do you think I'm off base in the how this works? Yeah, no,
1: that's exactly what that, that yeah. group is trying to do, without really understanding what the long term implications are to the problems of British Columbia. And, and it's easy to get engaged when you see those kinds of you know pull at the heartstrings type of activities. But you know, let's 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 look at what this what this right might really mean. And so the work that we did with the pulp and paper coalition, you know, over the last few months was trying to. Quantify if we were to do some kind of Incremental old growth protection. What does it mean for the annual allowable cut? What does it mean for sawmills that re- rely on logs being, you know, processed from the forest? What's it mean to the pulp and paper industry? So you've done this work. We we did this work. Okay, based, let's hear it. Let's did, hear it. We did this work based on what <laughs> we believed the government might do, and and so so I'll talk about old growth because that's that's what everyone's interested in. So what we did is we made an assumption. Very similar to what the Sierra Club had suggested on a lot of their uh, material that any ecosystem that has less than 30% old growth left in it, you know, is considered, you know, an endangered ecosystem and that should be protected. So that's what we did. We went through the, the thousands and thousands of landscape units in, in British Columbia and said, okay, let's just protect all the old growth that's, that's in a landscape unit that doesn't have 30% what happens to the allowable cut? What What's the implications of that? And very quickly, we saw that on the coast, the cut would probably drop by about seven to eight percent or about a million cubic meters. In the interior, it would drop by about two million cubic meters or about five percent. So these are not insignificant amounts of reductions in allowable cut. And if you take a million cubic meters out of the cut, you're going to close a couple of sawmills. You take 2 million meters of cut out of the interior, you're going to close another couple of sawmills. And these are sawmills that provide, you know, significant employment in those rural communities.
0: And how many jobs might we be talking about in, in an average sawmill if there is such a thing as an average sawmill?
1: Well, and, and the average sawmill is actually getting more average in British Columbia because we've had 30 to 40 of them closed across British Columbia and they tended to be the ones that were less efficient and, and less modern and they, and the industry is focused on the best mills that produce the best products and they've become significantly more Efficient. We don't produce just two by four and two by six. We produce one by two and one by one. Kind of get as much lumber out of those individual pieces of log that come to the mill as they can. But unfortunately, you know, we know the impact that the old growth you know, you might have. But there's a lot of policy decisions that are also in front of government they have to allow as i said earlier for those spruce beetle epidemics there's still adjustments to be made for the dead pine stands there there's there's uh, the fires that we have to allow for and and you know even though they've only got one caribou agreement in place up in the peace uh, region of the province the government is continuing to work with the federal government to allow for increased preservation of forest to address caribou populations. All these things are going on at once. So it's not just old growth that is the issue. All of these other issues will all impact on the availability of the wood supply.
0: Now, Jim, by the time people hear us when this is broadcast, maybe there will be a decision out there already, so we can't really predict that, but would you say that there is a concern that the next step in the public process is going to be one that is is going to be uh, a negative for forest communities? I,
1: I absolutely believe, you know, just given the direction the government has taken with the committee made up of the environmental group, their commitment to preserve more oil growth, their obligation to continue to work with the feds to dress caribou, the reality that they have to deal with fire and, and all the other pests. You know, we're predicting that on the coast here, we could see a drop in the cut of two to three million and four mills on the coast, five to seven in the interior, and potentially two or more pulp mills will all face fiber shortages by the time all of these policy decisions get made. And, 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 and of course, that's going to affect rural communities significantly.
0: So, Jim, what would you advise the Premier to do in the current situation? He's got some advice, some recommendations. What do you think the, the policy direction should be for old-growth forestry in BC? I
1: think at the end of the day, if I was speaking to Premier Horgan, I'd say you have to find this balance between what the people want and what the industry needs, much like the land use plans in the 80s you know, had achieved, Right. We have to just recognize the environmental faction will never be happy. There will always be another old growth stand that needs to be protected. But the government needs to stand their ground, make the hard decisions. Yes, the industry is going to be impacted, but we have to find that balance that will give some security and continuity of wood supply for these mills so that they can continue invest. Because if they don't, those jobs that those people have are going to just
0: disappear. You're listening to ForestWorks today. We're all things forestry. I'm your host, Stuart Muir. Today, we're joined by Jim Gervin. For more information, check out forestworks.ca and listen to our podcast. It's on all your favorite podcast apps. So Jim Gerven, professional forester, MBA, you've advised governments on forest policy. If you looked at the current situation, we have the provincial government. They're about to get some recommendations. Maybe by the time people hear this recording, they will already have heard the news about what's what's happening i just want to talk about that that body we had the provincial government ask a a panel of five individuals that appointed to do this work four of the five came from environmental organizations they they didn't seem to have room for anyone from a university or or from industry or first nations it was really broadly one one organization where all of those individuals had very strong ties. The Sierra Club, which is a, a U.S.-based organization, you know, a very strong Canadian presence—not not to overlook that—but an organization that has got one goal, and that that is to stop the the impact of humanity and and stop industry. Is that? a balanced approach? Is it likely to be a panel that will bring about something that works for all 5.1 million British Columbia residents?
1: Well, it's it's hard to believe that that's going to be the case and 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 it's uh, the industry I'd say the industry a lot of First Nations a lot I think a lot of people were disappointed when the government appointed, you know, that group given that the number 1 recommendation in the old growth report was to engage indigenous leaders and organizations to review the report. And to my uh, knowledge that uh, that really hasn't happened yet and I would find it disappointing if the government went down a path of bringing these environmental people to the table, letting them dictate where forest policy was going to go with respect to old growth preservation, and then implement it without any other input. But they haven't made that decision yet, so so time will tell.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you've given us an indication of what government should be doing here. I mean, it concerns a lot of mayors that we've been talking to at the Forest Works show. We've talked to First Nations leadership, and they're all asking the same question of, hey, we're here. What are we? Chop liver. Why, why aren't you talking to us? Labor is in the same boat. I mean, they represent thousands of forest workers, whether it's in, in the timberlands, in, in the manufacturing facilities, the mills, the pulp and paper. No one's talking to them. It seems like an odd way to go about things.
1: I agree, Stuart. And that's why the, the work that we did over the last six months with the pulp and paper coalition w- was so important where we tried to second guess what the impact of all these various forest policy decisions and allowances for the, the unfortunate biology that mother nature gives us with fires and beetles. You know, we produced a forecast that, that showed that there's going to be some fairly negative implications to the sawmill and pulp mill sector. But then what we did is we, we put that together into a 20, 25 minute PowerPoint and we've shared it with, I think to date, 13 community mayoral or community groups. You know, some of those presentations we did, there was 10 or 15 people wanting to just find out how is this going to affect us? Where are these potential mill closures going to happen? And the one comment I keep getting back from them all is they appreciate that someone's actually showing them some data, showing them some analysis, so that when they then go to the provincial government to provide input, they've got some background for that. And so I think there's just an ongoing need for that continued type of work, like you know, like this conversation we're having today, to to allow more than just the rhetoric to be out there. This is what really goes on. Here's the data. Here's the forecasts. Here's how people invest, and and we want to. Make sure this industry keeps operating.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think back to the so-called war in the woods, the 1990s. I was in grad school in those days. I remember uh, I I found those messages about the environmental concerns to be really compelling. I think it was one of those things. It wasn't just generational. You know, maybe young people want change and older people don't. I, I, I think there were. You know, everyone wanted to see improvements and. And as a result of what happened in the nineties, we have a much different forest industry. I'd like to just spend a little time, Jim, since you're really the, one of the prime people I could ever hope to speak to on this in hearing from you about what those changes have been on the ground, just in practical terms. I mean, I'm talking about silviculture and science, genomic uh, selection of trees, smaller cut blocks, the way they build roads, the way business, you know, optimizing the use of fiber, all that stuff, because I think if people know what's been going on in forestry science technology and application of knowledge in in the woods in BC, they'd probably have maybe in some cases a a very different, I would hope, more positive view of forestry. Can you get us into those details a bit?
1: Yeah, you, you just ran through the 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 top 10 highlights of how the industry has actually adapted and I think it it you know it's been going on you know all, for a long time but I think one of the big focus changes came in about 2003 2006 in that period when you know the Americans and the softwood lumber agreement you know tried to you know suggest that we're subsidizing the industry and that's a whole topic on itself but the industry had to get a lot more efficient in order to compete we, we compete in a global market to sell wood uh, wood products whether it's um Lumber or panels or even pellets or energy. We have to, we have to be competitive globally. And so our industry has adapted like that. They've gotten more efficient at hauling wood, you know, with, with eight and 10 axle trucks. They've gotten more efficient at harvesting by uh, having new equipment and the, the trend towards second growth. They've got more efficient at making lumber, making more lumber out of each individual log. All of that has been significant investment into the industry. You know, that that has resulted in us maintaining our position as one of the more globally competitive places to buy forest products.
0: Since those changes took place, we've seen the BC forest industry cut in half basically job-wise. It used to support 200,000 workers in BC. Now there's about 100,000 that's direct and indirect. Still a lot of jobs. I mean, today... According to the provincial government's figures, the f- whole forest sector is eighteen percent of the base economy of of the province. You know what other industry is is so big? well even natural gas and mining themselves are not that big. Uh, I know a lot of people think that tourism is that big or that high tech is that big, but each of those top out at maybe 6% of the base economy. I mean, they're great industries and the, the, the future is is bright for them. But the fact is they're just not that same monstrous base that forestry is. It's huge all around communities and these jobs are solid ones. I mean, they're high paying. I looked up last time uh, this summer, I think July figures from the province of BC were 40 one bucks an hour is what the, what the average wage is in, in forestry, which is a uh, really good money. That's. Money that supports a family on one income, if you, if that's what you want to do, and and so that loss of a hundred thousand jobs at that level is devastating. And these mill closures, I mean, you've talked about the statistics of that. It's one thing to say, "Oh, we lost thirty-three mills here because the pine beetle." We, we're going to lose four because of decisions that are being advocated for by the Sierra Club on a on a on a provincial committee. That's just to them maybe it's a statistic, but surely that's people's lives that are being you know managed here in not a good way.
1: It's unfortunate about the job loss, but as I said, it's it's it was it was required. The fact that our industry still exists, British Columbia is a reasonably high cost operating environment to work in. On the on the coast, you know, you've got the mountains, you've you you've got a lot of water that you have to deal with and you're planning logging in the interior. There's long, long haul distances. Unfortunately, the industry had to get competitive. And in in a study that we did with the Truck Loggers Association back about four or five years ago, we quantified job loss based on what was actually happening in the industry. Because you hear a lot of, again, rhetoric, you know, that, you know, because we export logs, we're losing jobs. And, and, and the reality is about 50% of all the jobs that were lost between 2001 and 2016 were because logging and manufacturing got more efficient. We employed technology in order to reduce costs so that we could continue to sell uh, forest products in a global market. The harvest itself was reduced, and that dropped about 35% of the jobs. We used to have a cut, an allowable cut that was quite a bit higher, but there's been a lot of protection. You know, we just look at the Great Bear Rainforest. The allowable cut in those areas went on the coast went down 11% just because of the Great Bear Rainforest Protection Agreement. So the fact that the reduced manufacturing and mills closed, a lot of it was tied to that reduction in harvest. And yes, there was some slight loss in jobs because of log exports have increased over the last few years on the coast. But that's allowed us to access very low quality stands that are otherwise too expensive to go and harvest. So it's been this balance. And at the end of the day, yes, we have a hundred thousand jobs that are tied to the industry today, the majority of which are located in rural communities, and we can still sell products globally. And that's, that's just the unfortunate reality of operating in British Columbia.
0: Now, a few export logs. Is the BC government collecting stumpage on those exported logs?
1: BC government collects stumpage on every log that's harvested. And in fact, they have an incremental fee that they charge that is called the fee in lieu, which means if you had to process that log locally, this is an estimate of the amount of money that the government would have created. So, you know, logs are simply another product that we produce. They're, they're manufactured to very strict specifications. And as they say, they sell for reasonably high values. And that allows us to access stands that otherwise you couldn't go into because they're, you know, too, too costly to deliver. Right. It's expensive to deliver logs on the coast. Yeah.
0: Now, I just want to come back to this question of how much benefit we get from from logs whether they're exported or, or turned into other things when you when you log and you take a truck load loaded up with logs out of the woods and it goes off to whatever is going to happen to it the government is is right there taking its piece one truck has got about forty five forty five 45 cubic meters on board or so i'm told would you agree with that figure
1: Yeah, 45 is a good number here. On on the coast, you do some off-highway trucking where you could maybe get up to you know, 80 or 90 cubic meters, but 45 is a good average. So
0: 45 for one truck. And what's a stumpage rate? Because it's also by cubic meters. And we can come up with a number really easily. I've got my calculator ready to punch in a number here. What is that logging truck worth in terms of what the taxpayer gets?
1: Well, it, it, that the the actual stumpage rate is just a small portion of what the government collects uh, in revenues, but you know, stumpage today in, in the interior really varies depending on what region you're in, but I think it's around 30, 35 dollars a cubic meter is what the cost is simply for the right to go and harvest trees. Beyond that, there's there's taxes paid by the mills on on their operations, there's income taxes paid by those 100, you know, thousand uh, people, you know, In aggregate, in a study that was done last year, it's about $4 billion a year in tax revenue that the various levels of government collect directly from the forest industry. And as an example, you say, well, what does $4 billion pay for in a big provincial budget? That's about 53,000 school teachers, Stuart. Fifty-three thousand school teachers are paid for directly by the forest industry. When you look at the amount of money the the government collects, you know we we can't make smaller classes and we can't you know help protect kids from the virus while at the same time eliminating the source of funds that's paying for those teachers. So again, that's why this balance in what the people want versus what the industry needs and what government needs to make it all work has to be found by government and they have to stick to their guns once
0: they found that balance. Well, those are great numbers. I mean, if you look at one logging truck on the road, if it's the example you're talking about, that's $1,600 there. If you're driving down the highway, you see a loaded logging truck, that money, not including a whole bunch of other taxes collected, the income tax that that driver's paying and all the loggers are paying, property taxes, all that stuff, as you mentioned, Jim, it's true. But $1,600, if, if you have a higher value load of logs on a truck, that could be right now, I'm told, up to... Uh, you know eight thousand dollars that the government 's collecting off that maybe that 's a more specialized example, but it certainly i 'm told happens
1: absolutely It just depends on the species that they 're hauling if they 're hauling low value wood it 's slightly less if they 're hauling high value wood it's definitely can be very high
0: yeah, and now you you drive past I know a lot of people i I do some public opinion polling, or I I hear from pollsters and sometimes get to work with them on things. And a question we often ask is, what's the future economy of BC like? And and most people, majority of people will say, future of the BC economy is in film and tourism and high tech. And if you say, well, what about forestry and mining? Uh, Mining's like way down the list. They don't think that's the future. Forestry, they don't think is really the future is a little, you know, I think people appreciate forestry. They They feel it's a green, renewable industry. It actually rates relatively well, but it's still below... Tourism, but but you know to get eighteen uh, you know eight thousand dollars or or sixteen hundred bucks straight into the provincial government's coffers from you know a tour bus. I mean, would you even get that much from from a tour bus? You know, when a cruise ship comes to town, I'm sure it's more than sixteen hundred bucks. But but that's still a tough way to earn revenue. And, and forestry and mining and natural gas have a way of producing very efficiently a lot of government revenue.
1: It's, it's funny, Stuart. I remember back in the, in the mid seventies when I was talking to some school, uh, friends, you know, this is when we were in high school and we're all deciding the kind of career paths we're going to be taking. And I would tell people, well, I, I'm, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to learn forestry. And I would have people look at me. Well, Jim, what are you going to do when all the trees are gone? And and here I am, forty, forty six, forty seven years later. When I account for the four years at university that I took, and and the province is still covered in trees. There's a still a huge demand for forest professionals working in this business. You can go to the Canadian Forest Industries website every day and see forty or fifty job openings where they're trying to get people to come to help continue the management of our forests through good times and bad. You know, we we've had a tough go of it here because of the beetle, but all those all those forests where the trees were killed, they're starting to grow. Last year we planted 300 million trees in British Columbia alone. And and those trees have to be looked after. The industry is not going away. It's it 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 could change as public values and perceptions of the industry change, but it's still a huge employer and and the fact that it's sustainable, the trees just keep growing. As I said, I'm in Haida Gwaii and I'm on a road that hasn't been used in two years. There's trees growing up through the road. We can't help but do but but grow trees in this province, and we do it very well.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, there might be someone listening who's maybe thinking to themselves, "These guys don't get it. The oh, the old growth is disappearing. The last old growth tree, according to these, you know." Facebook posts coming into my feed here from, from these organizations are saying there's none left. So come on guys, get with it. We need to just stop all that logging. Anything that you would say to maybe balance that out? Is that, I mean, first of all, is it true? Are we about to cut down the last old growth tree in BC as claimed?
1: Every year, there's another last tree. And what I always find interesting, Stuart, is it's it's funny how the environmental faction tends to always find another forest that needs saving. And you know why that is? It's because there's so many of them. They're everywhere. There's old growth forests all over the province. You know, of the 55 million hectares or so that we've got in British Columbia, 13... A little more than 13 million or 24% are considered old growth by the classic definition, you know, over 250 years or in the coast or 140 in the interior. But it doesn't mean that all old growth forests are likely to be harvested. 4.4 million of those are under complete protection today. And another five plus million are, are not even considered available for harvesting. That's 73%. 73% of the old forests in the province will never ever be harvested so when you hear the statement well we're down to 2% there's only 2% left right hmm. there there may be the odd location you know southern vancouver island where in, in this particular drainage there's only 2% left i'm i'm not questioning that but the notion that the media has allowed and the environmentalists have allowed the media to, to make that sound like there's only 2% left provincially is just an outright lie when we've got 78% or close to 10 million hectares of what's considered old growth. A lot of it with big trees mm-hmm. is totally protected.
0: Jim, we're running short on time here. In, say, one minute or less, could you explain something? And this is a really crucial idea. I find it hard to explain myself, even though I think I sort of understand it, which is this idea of transition to old growth, from rather from old growth to second growth, particularly on the coast, but probably in lots of other places too. And what's the reason that transition can't happen like in in a year or two years and why the experts say it needs longer? What's the reason in a nutshell?
1: Well, you know, simply put, you know, in in my career, the 25 years I've been in the coast, we've gone from about 10% of the harvest being in second growth timber to about 50% today. And over the next 10, 12, maybe 15 years, as the industry continues to evolve, we should be able to generate enough land base to be able to have a sustainable level of cut in second growth timber to maintain the mills. We, we could ban old growth logging today on the coast and we would transition. But unfortunately, 50% of the mills would close. Probably the entire pulp sector would close because you just can't shift to second growth harvesting only because there isn't enough land base yet to allow us to have a sustainable level of cut given the capacity we have in our sawmills and our
0: pulp mills. So again, this is where you have to find that balance. Jim, thanks. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for all the information you brought forward. It's going to help people understand important public policy evolution that's happening right now in 2021 and 2022, probably into 2023. So thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Stu. Appreciate it.
0: That's been another episode of Forestworks. Our guest today was Jim Gervan. I'm your host, Stuart Muir. Thanks for tuning in to Forestworks. Check out Forestworks.ca for more information about our project.